One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. <clears throat> Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Well, it's that time of year when many of us are thinking about that ever-elusive thing called vacation, uh, rest. Uh, not necessarily the case for all of you moms with school-aged children. Uh, things might get more challenging for you in the summer months, but many of us are, are thinking about anticipating rest. If you're a teacher or a student, it probably, especially for you, feels like kind of a race to the finish right now. But before you know it, you too will be able to exhale, to relax, to rest. Or will you? I mean, rest is actually more complicated than it seems. It's more difficult to achieve than we may think, especially in a smartphone age, a social media age. It's difficult, wherever we are, to actually unplug, even if you're lying in bed or sitting on a beach. It can still be a challenge. Where do you find calm amid the storm? How do you unplug? Where do you go? What do you do for rest? Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to think about the dynamics of deep rest in true life. Deep rest in true life. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. If you have one of the Bibles that we've provided, which as Sebastian mentioned, we don't want back. If, if that's our gift to you, if you don't own a Bible, you can find our passage today on page 683. 683. Feel free to use the table of contents to locate the gospel according to Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament, and it's the earliest biography that we have of the life of Jesus. If you're not familiar with a Bible, it's important to know that the uh, big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. That's especially relevant today because our passage actually straddles two different chapters. Now, the reason for this 
is because the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible were not original to the apostles who wrote the, the books of the Bible and the, the New Testament. They weren't breathed out by God. These were added in the 1300s and the 1400s by some well-meaning scribes and an archbishop of Canterbury, but uh, they are not inspired. And today is an example of where I think that the folks who divided the gospel according to Mark by chapters got it wrong because what we see at the end of chapter 2 and at the beginning of chapter 3 form one Sabbath controversy. It's, it's two different accounts, two different scenes, but they're all focused on the same theme. Well, where are we before we actually look at these passages? Let's just remember where we are in the gospel according to Mark. Yes, we're near the end of chapter 2, but even more specifically, we are in a series of clashes between Jesus and the religious leaders. The, the tide of conflict has been rising. Things are already tense and delicate, but this morning, we are going to see the breaking point. So I have two points two lessons that I want us to think about in light of these verses. And if I'm doing this correctly, these arise right out of the passage. First, the Lord of rest. We'll see that in chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. And second, the Lord of life. That's the first six verses of chapter 3. The Lord of rest and the Lord of life. First, the Lord of rest. Look there at Mark 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? To understand this encounter, we have to rewind the clock to see what the Sabbath was all about. Keep your finger in, in Mark chapter 2 and turn backward to Exodus chapter 20. So Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Now turn back to the second book in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to look at the famous passage where God at Mount Sinai gives to Moses and to Israel 10 commandments. And here's the fourth and longest commandment. The fourth and longest commandment, starting in verse 8. Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right, you can turn back to Mark chapter 2. At the time of Jesus, it has been roughly 1,500 years since that original command to Moses and to Israel at Mount Sinai. And the command is still in effect at the time of Jesus. But in recent years, the Pharisees have been creating a whole complex system of rules and regulations that, that 
was meant to function as a kind of wall of protection encircling the commands themselves. But things had gotten out of hand, even if the intentions began well, that we're going to create this wall of protective regulations lest anyone violate any of the actual commands. But things got out of hand because legalism always leads to absurdity. So for example, the religious leaders at the time of Jesus were saying that it was a Sabbath-breaking sin to untie a knot. If your sandals got knotted up on the Sabbath day, you had to wait until it was over to untie them. Because untying a knot constituted work. Or uh, you cannot walk on the Sabbath day more than 1,000 999 paces, roughly half a mile. So Jesus and his disciples probably broke, you know, that uh, regulation in the grain field as well, even though it's not the one that the Pharisees happened to flag. Or the Pharisees also said, if you tore a garment on the Sabbath day, you were allowed, you're welcome, to sew one stitch, but no more, lest it constitute Sabbath-violating work. Well, it's the Sabbath, and Jesus' disciples are strolling through this grain field. And they're, they're, they're spotted, snapping off heads of wheat and, and rubbing them in their hands and blowing off the chaff in order to eat the grain. This was not prohibited in the law of Moses. In fact, Deuteronomy 23:25 says it's fine to eat from your neighbor's grain field. But according to the rule book of the rabbis, this was harvesting and therefore constituted working. The, the whole encounter sounds pretty pathetic, pretty desperate, because it is. Jesus is not running afoul of their absurd rule book in downtown Capernaum. Where is he? He's out in the fields, which means these guys have like private investigators on him to catch him doing something, anything wrong. It's like a little child who just revels in tattling. Mommy, Daddy, look what she did. She broke the rule. But in this case, it's not she broke your rule. It's she broke my rule. There's actually a warning here for us, isn't there, in how we read and apply our Bibles. The, the Pharisees were myopic, short-sighted in their reading of the Bible. The, and it's, it's, it's useful in light of a passage like this and this kind of misapplication of biblical commands to think about how not every biblical command is created equal, as it were. I mean, all biblical commands are equally inspired by God and sufficient, but different commands are accomplishing different functions and getting from command, biblical command, to modern day application is not always obvious. The Christian ethicist Robert Benny has a helpful uh, dis, uh, distinction between what he calls straight line issues and jagged line issues. Now, he's primarily applying this to the world of politics, but it applies to hermeneutics, to biblical interpretation. 
Sometimes there is a clear, direct, straight line from a biblical command to a modern-day application. Other times, though, the line is a bit more jagged. And that's one of the reasons why here at RCBC we want to read our Bibles well, wisely, sensitively, so that we know when commands need to be filtered through the rubric of Christian wisdom and prudence. See, the Pharisees had mastered the art of treating every command as if it was a straight line issue. But things are not quite so simple. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 25, he answers, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he, David, also gave some to his companions. Jesus is like, okay, you may not like me, trust me, but let's talk about one of your heroes. Let's talk David. You guys know your Bibles, 1 Samuel 21. What did David and his men do when they were running from Saul and starving near the tabernacle? They broke code because it was an unusual circumstance. What you saw us doing in the grain fields, Jesus is saying, actually is lawful. But even if it wasn't, I have an Old Testament example. I have an example from the Hebrew Scriptures of breaking the letter of the law in order to keep the spirit of the law, which is the very thing you guys have long since missed. If a ceremonial law could be suspended for David, how much more can mere human regulations be put aside for the Messiah? Or, as we might say today in modern parlance, Jesus is like, get off my lawn. Another thing. Now, this is the kind of thing that, that some churches would bypass and not flag in preaching a text like this because probably very few of you would notice if I didn't mention it. But at RCBC, we want to be people who take all of the Bible seriously, and even when it presents us with difficulties, we want to look at those difficulties clear-eyed. In our statement of faith, we confess that the content of the Bible is, quote, truth without any mixture of error. Now, why do I bring that up? Because there seems to be an error here. What in the world do we do with the fact that Mark quotes Jesus in verse 26 as saying that David interacted with Abiathar? When actually, if you read 1 Samuel 21, he didn't. He interacted with Abiathar's dad, Ahimelech. Is this an error? Should this kind of thing undermine our confidence in the historical reliability of the Scriptures? Absolutely it should, if it's an error. 
but it's not. Some point out, many have pointed out over the years, that the grammatical construction in Hebrew can easily mean something like near the passage concerning Abiathar. And he does show up in the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 22. Or in the, quote, scriptural era of Abiathar. And that makes sense because Abiathar was the more prominent figure in the story. If you just read the narrative in 1 Samuel, it's really the, the, the story of Abiathar and other priests in his family. But I think there's something else going on too. I think Jesus mentions Abiathar in particular as kind of a subversive, what we would call today, subtweet. Because it was Abiathar uniquely who helped protect David and his men, protect their life, which sets him in direct contrast to whom? To these Pharisees, who were opposing Jesus, the son of David, and will soon plot to destroy him. In other words, Jesus cites Abiathar as a strategic move to identify himself with David and them with Saul and Doag the Edomite, who killed all the priests in the very next chapter in 1 Samuel, 2020, uh, 1 Samuel 22. What he's doing is not lost on them. Remember in the scene also, I'm kind of closed that bracket, okay? That was just dealing with that problem. Remember in the scene immediately before this one, that we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus claimed to be what? Remember, the bridegroom of Israel. A wedding feast is not an appropriate time to mourn or fast. Find another time. This is a time to celebrate because the king, the bridegroom of Israel, is here. And I think something similar is going on in our passage this morning logically. The implication of Jesus' words and his appeal to a story about Israel's greatest king is to say, hey Pharisees, the king is here. Why shouldn't he and his people eat in a grain field? Instead of freaking out about us working and harvesting in the fields, you should be spreading a banquet. Because the divine bridegroom and the ultimate monarch of Israel is here. And then he brings the point home. Verse 27, Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's interesting because he doesn't just say, The Sabbath was made for Jews, not Jews for the Sabbath. No, he says, The Sabbath was made for humanity. He's appealing to the original order of things. The purpose of the Sabbath was to reflect something about God's own creation of the world. The pattern of working for six days and resting for one. But the Pharisees had turned that gift into a crushing burden. They had turned that law of love into a ladder for achievement. Well, this raises another question for us, and that's how do we, in the New Covenant era, Christians on this side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, how do we interpret the fourth commandment that we read earlier in Exodus 20 to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy? 
Well, gospel-loving Christians disagree about this, how it ought to be applied today, even about how to understand a, a, a passage like Mark 2. But I'm convinced that when we, we put the whole witness of the New Testament together, we see that the Sabbath, the Sabbath command has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're not obligated to observe it the same way Israel under the old covenant did because its function has been rendered obsolete by the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Earlier in the service, we, we stood and we declared from our statement of faith uh, an article on the Lord's Day. And one of the reasons, that statement, and you can revisit it this week, that's one of the reasons we print out service guides for you so they can be a tool for personal and family worship throughout the week. You can revisit that statement and you can notice that one of the reasons it's worded the way it is is because we believe, just what I said, that the Sabbath day pointed beyond itself to the one who would achieve ultimate rest for us. That's why our scripture reading earlier in the service was from Hebrews chapter 4. And our prayer of praise uh, that Sebastian prayed was in light of that. Because Jesus has come to bring us in, to usher us in to a permanent, eternal Sabbath rest because he worked for us. Or consider Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You don't have to turn there, but Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul writes, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let anyone judge you in regard to a Sabbath day. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So this statement in Mark 2 is, is meant to underscore. When Jesus says in verse 28 that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, it underscores that rest is found in him. And so if you think about it, it's entirely appropriate that he'd be healing on this day. It's entirely appropriate. I mean, what could be more appropriate than him healing on the day that is itself a preview of the day when healing will no longer be needed? And while I don't think we can make that kind of straight line application from the Sabbath command in Exodus 20 to weekly rest today, our need for rest is the same as it's always been. We're still creatures. We're still derivative. We are still dependent, wired for dependence on an all-sufficient God. So if you struggle to stop working, take breaks, to unplug, to rest, then that should function kind of like a check engine light for your soul. Our brother Sebastian Traeger, along with Greg Gilbert in their book, The Gospel at Work, have this to say about rest and how rest is kind of a, a, de it's a declaration of dependence on God 
and a declaration of independence from everything that would threaten to make us feel like we need it. They write this, quote, when we idolize work, we resist rest. When we idolize work, we resist rest. Rest becomes an irritant that keeps us from achieving our goals. It's a speed bump on the road to success, a forced exile from what really matters. But here's the thing. God knows your limits. He designed them. You can trust him when he says you need to rest. And then Sebastian and Greg ask, do you subtly think the world is going to collapse around you if you rest from your work? Is your life going to collapse? Are your dreams going to slip away? If you think so, even for a second, then you need to take that up with the God who created you and designed you with a need for rest. He designed you this way to teach you each night as you fall asleep that the things that matter most in life really don't depend on you and your work. Folks, as human beings, we have to sleep for one third of our lives that's how impressive we are. <laughs> God does not need us, but you do need him and you do need rest. Let's be a church that trusts God enough to sleep, that trusts God enough to leave in his hands things that we never had control of in the first place. Let's trust him enough to be great resters. It's not a call to apathy, but it is a call to security in all that he is for us in Christ. One other thing I want you to see in verse 28. Remember how the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 was worded? Quote, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And here, Jesus is saying, I am that Lord. The holy day is my day. The Sabbath has always been pointing to me. So what's the connection? Let's read our Bibles carefully. What's the connection logically between verse 27 and 28? Okay, verse 27 tells us that humans aren't meant to serve the Sabbath. Humans are meant to serve the Lord. In other words, humans are meant to be served by the Sabbath. And then verse 28 says, yeah, and humans can only be rightly served by the Sabbath if they are serving the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. Point number two, and more briefly, the Lord of life. Look there at verse one. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So it's another Saturday, but this time we're not in the grain fields. We are in the synagogue. And I can't help but wonder if this poor guy with a deformed hand was a plant. If he had been planted there by the Pharisees as a pawn in their evil game of chess. Verse 2 tells us explicitly that some were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. You know that word for accuse? 
has a formal ring to it. It means they're mounting a case. And this suffering man is their latest prop. In these first two chapters in Mark's gospel, we've already encountered various instances of seeing. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to show you. Look at Mark chapter 1. Look at Mark 1. And I want to show you this theme that you may have missed. So Mark 1 verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he what? Saw Simon and Andrew and then called them to follow him. Verse 19, when he had gone a little farther, he what? Saw James and John. Now look at chapter 2, verse 5. These men lower a paralyzed man through the roof and verse 5 when Jesus what saw their faith he said to the paralyzed man son your sins are forgiven look at verse 14 as he walked along he what saw Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth Jesus saw Simon and Andrew he saw James and John he saw the paralyzed man. He saw Levi, the tax collector. But look here at chapter 3, verse 2. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. Hypocrites and Jesus have something in common. Both are serious about seeing. Both look at others with searching eyes, but whereas hypocrites look to trap and accuse and condemn, Jesus looks with eyes of love to heal and to save. What about you, friend? What do you see? How do you see? What, what are you eyeing, searching for, hoping to spot in others? What, when you see it in someone else, especially in another brother or sister in Christ, what makes you come alive and what makes you shrivel up inside? Do you delight in exposing other Christians? Are you energized just by the thought of spotting someone else doing wrong? Even if it's just a small blunder. In other words, are you quicker to catch people at their worst and shame them or to find people at their worst and love them? These are good questions for us all to consider, perhaps even at our inaugural home group, at your inaugural home group this week. And if you're not a Christian, I, I want you, first of all, to know that we are so happy you're here. This meeting, this worship service is not just for followers of Jesus. This is for everyone. 
we're so grateful that, that you've joined us. And I want you to, to notice that the people here in this story are looking for a reason, any reason to not have to listen to Jesus, not have to actually take seriously what he says. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I would ask you, friend, do you have any reasons, excuses, defense mechanisms, objections that are really just smoke screens, that are really just ways for you to keep the Lord Jesus Christ and his claims on you at arm's length? Ways to, ha to, to avoid having to listen to what he says. I don't know even what you think he says. I don't know what you've heard, but, but here is what he says. He says that you were created for glory, that you were created to know God and love God and enjoy God and experience God in personal relationship, but that you, like all of us, have turned away from God. We have been like little ants climbing to the top of his throne to try to topple him off. We have said, we don't want you at the center of our little universe. We want to be king. We want to be Lord. And so we've lived for ourselves. We've all built our life around things other than God. We've tried to find rest, life, satisfaction, calm in things other than God. And because of that, we deserve his righteous and holy punishment. We, we, we have severed, our sin has severed that relationship with him. As it, as it was taught to me when I, when I was a college student, you know, our, 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 we were made to be like one with God. And yet sin has created a barrier so that we cannot get to God. But in the fullness of time, he sent his son to come down and to cross that barrier, to bridge that gap. The cross of Jesus Christ is the way that sinners can be restored to a relationship with a holy God. And guess what? All you have to do for that to happen, all you have to do to be forgiven of your sin, to be welcomed into the family of a holy God, is simply to turn away from your sin and to trust in Jesus, to repent and believe. It's something you can do in your seat this morning. You don't have to book a flight and go to some holy site in another country. You don't have to follow a series of steps or come to church for a number of weeks. You simply have to throw yourself on Jesus and trust that he's going to catch you and never let go. What I love about this encounter is that Jesus doesn't shrink from it, does he? He goes on the offensive. He even turns the tables, if you noticed. So look again there, uh, back, in, back in chapter 2. And, and look at this. This is the, we are in the fifth and final of these clashes between Jesus and the religious leaders. And there's been a pattern with every single one. Look at chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. And then the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Now look at verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, that's question number two, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? These guys got a lot of questions. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some came, people came and asked Jesus, here's question number three, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Verse 24, the Pharisees said to him, oh, look, they have another question. Question number four, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? But this time, he's got a question for them. Look at chapter three, verse three. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, not him. He's not talking to the man. He's talking to to the accusing eyes, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? This question is not, is it okay to do on the Sabbath what you guys permit? It's, is it okay to do what God loves? Jesus says, okay, we can talk lawfulness since you guys are such experts. What is the real purpose of the Sabbath regulations? Are they to harm or to help? See, they showed up that day. They slithered in once again to expose him, but now they are the ones being exposed. No wonder we read at the end of verse 4, they remained silent. But unfortunately, this was not a humble silence. This was not a repentant silence. This was a calculating silence. And so, verse 5, Jesus looked around at them in anger. If the Jesus in your mind never gets angry, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus was not mildly disturbed. He was furious here. Furious that these leaders cared more about their fussy, sophisticated religious system than the well-being of this suffering man. But his anger, his righteous anger, was mixed also with pain. Did you see that? Continuing in verse 5, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. This is an act of incredible mercy, but Mark's focus is not so much on the mercy, but on the fact that the most serious condition in the synagogue that day was not this man's shriveled hand. It was everyone else's shriveled hearts. And the irony of it all is that the Sabbath police were unable to rest. They were in a frenzy. All they could do was point the finger because they were so wrapped up in the letter of the law that they had lost the heart of the law. If there's one thing that enrages the Jesus of the Bible, it is the myopia of self-righteousness. Of course, acts of mercy and kindness toward those in need weren't prohibited on the Sabbath. What could be more appropriate? But these religious leaders had found a way to make them seem inappropriate. Jesus has a problem 
with people who use God's commands to keep others from God's mercy. Jesus has a problem with those who use God's commands, and this happens in churches, who use God's commands to keep others from God's mercy. We take God's commands seriously at this church, but only His commands. That's why we want to leave ample room here at River City Baptist, ample room for liberty of conscience and Christian freedom, lest we start to bind consciences where Scripture does not. Where God has clearly spoken, we will too. And where He has not, we better shut up. See, the problem with human commands that kind of get baptized as divine commands sometimes, but the problem with merely human commands, among other things, is that they provide false guilt in what they expect and false assurance in what they ignore. They False guilt in terms of what they expect, but false assurance in terms of what they ignore. We want to be a church that holds high, and, and even in the, I'll just, I'll just read it, in the Lord's Day article from the Statement of Faith that we, we, we mentioned earlier, if I can find it, what a great service guide. Uh, all right, page four, last sentence, activities on the Lord's Day, that is Sunday, should be commensurate with, that means uh, uh, in accord with, the Christian's conscience under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And not just on Sunday, but every day. We want to be a church who takes God seriously, but doesn't take ourselves too seriously. Well, the last verse here is is verse 6. The compassion of Jesus, though it was free to this disabled man, it was profoundly costly to Jesus. Yes, he silenced his accusers, but it didn't stop them. Look at the words there in verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is shocking. These two groups did not hang out. They had less in common than Democrats and Republicans. The Pharisees were a religious group. The Herodians were a political group. The Pharisees were mostly nationalists. The Herodians were supporters of Herod the Great's dynasty and by implication of Roman rule. But the Pharisees were legalistic and the Herodians could work with them because they were opportunistic. Those of you who are students of history know that during World War II, Winston Churchill allied himself with one of the wickedest men in history, Joseph Stalin, in order to overthrow their common enemy, Adolf Hitler. Well, here in Mark 3, we see the ultimate example of the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In fact, every single time the Herodians show up in the Gospels, they show up in alliance with the Pharisees. The common suspicion of Jesus, the common hatred of Jesus is enough to bridge every other difference. I'm reminded of the words of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers, what? Band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, 
Let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. The Pharisees and the Herodians didn't want to submit to Jesus, so they conspired to eliminate the problem. We're here in Mark 3, okay? Verse 2, they're accusing. We see the desire to accuse, but by the time we get to verse 6, the desire to accuse has become an intent to destroy. Do you see the irony once again? The religious leaders deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath while they are plotting to do evil. May the Lord guard us at this church from hardened hearts. You know, that's one of the biggest things I pray for my kids. There's a lot you can pray for your kids, but I think a lot of it gets taken care of if you just pray, Lord, give them soft hearts. Keep their hearts tender toward you and toward others. And if you find that your heart is starting to become calloused in some way, if if you find that you're struggling to maintain a soft heart either toward the Lord or toward others, especially within your covenant family here at this church, there's a lot you could do. I could give a whole talk on that, but at the very least, you need to get back in the habit of rehearsing to yourself the gospel of grace. You are a sinner saved by grace and committing your heart to the gatherings of this church. It's very easy when you start to isolate yourself to grow calloused toward others, but it's very difficult to grow calloused towards someone, to mistrust someone, to hate someone that you're asking to pass you the salt. Stay close to one another in the context of this church and ask the Lord to keep your heart tender toward his people. Well, in conclusion, if you notice, Jesus is giving his life in this passage. No, we don't read anything about the cross but he is giving his life for the man with the withered hand. Why do I say that? Because he knows they're going to go plot to destroy him. And yet he walks right into it. He could have waited till Monday. This guy's hand had been disabled for a long time. He could have gone 24 more hours. But Jesus does it. It was actually Saturday. He could have waited till Sunday. But, but Jesus does it on the Sabbath, right in the eye of the people who had created this sophisticated scaffolding of rules and regulations. It's not in a back corner. It's in downtown Capernaum in the synagogue because he's throwing down the gauntlet. And from this point on, the shadow of the cross is going to loom over his life. It's only a matter of time, but friend, this is why Jesus came. He came for this confrontation and what it would lead to. He lived and died and rose. He healed and taught. He did it all so that we could find that ever-elusive thing called true rest. He did it to make possible what he says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He's the Lord of rest, and he's the Lord of life. And the message of this passage is that you will find neither rest nor life apart from him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are so bad at resting because we take ourselves so seriously and we live for ourselves rather than for you and your glory. We pray that you would help us to be people who rest well, ultimately, in the finished work of your Son, who did it all for us, who lived in our place, died in our place, and rose in our place, so that one day we can be with you, world without end, in a world of perfect peace and joy. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.